Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 109. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's guest is Gil Arzola, the uh, first winner of our 2021 Rattle Chapbook Prize. His book, uh, The Death of a Migrant Worker, just came out to subscribers um, this week. If you haven't got it yet, you'll get it soon, but uh, you'll get to hear and, and meet Gil tonight, which is really looking forward to that. Uh, before I begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are un- unaffiliated with any other organization. Uh, we just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do. So click the like button and share and make sure you're subscribed if you haven't been here before. Um, you know, for the regulars that are here all the time, you know the drill. But if you're listening for the first time, um, it really helps if you click something. So click something right now and help us out. Um, now, as always, we're going to go to um, some Poets Respond a little bit first, and we have two poets that we're going to be bringing in today. Uh, the first one is today's poet, Jennifer Reeser, and uh, she, her poem was a homeless traveling statesman about the um, hurricane, and um, let's call up Jennifer right now. Hey, Jennifer, I think you still have to push your camera button, but uh, come on in. I hear you. Are you there, Jennifer? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, I'm, I've got the button on, not seeing you. Hmm, let's see. Well, try to push that camera button again. Let's see if that works, because it, it should come in. It worked, worked a little earlier. Yeah, it did, and now it's it, it's given me the line across it. I don't know what the what the problem is. Hmm, that's okay. Well, we'll just do it by voice then. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so your poem today was a homeless traveling statesman, and um, do you want to just explain a little bit about about what it's about and and what your experience is with evacuating too? Yes. Well, you as you know, I I live down here in Louisiana. And I've been through a lot of these. I've been through a lot of these evacuations. I've been through a lot of killer storms like this. I was here for Katrina. I was here for Rita. And now I've been here for, for Ida and Laura last year. And uh, we, we've, had, we've gone through mandatory evacuations. And, uh, and also we've been given the option to stay during, during some of them. So I have mixed experiences with, with the hurricanes. And this was, I was kind of on the flip side of this uh, around this time. I, I've written a lot about these, these storms, and I have written a lot of persona poem, poems as well, but this one was real. Uh, we, on Wednesday, we, my husband and I stopped at a gas station, and, I, and as the article uh, cites that I, that I paired with the poem, the, the gas situation is terrible down here in, mm-hmm. in the Crescent City especially. And those people are desperate right now. They're without power. They're without gasoline. They're just they're just in a very bad situation. Well, we pulled up, and my husband got out of the car and was was crossing the parking lot when he saw a hatchback, and and a a, a man get out from it who just looked despondent. And he said he knew immediately. He just knew immediately what what was going on. And he just walked over to him and he said he said, "Hey man, where where are y'all headed?" And the, the, the man said, New Orleans. And th- that just that just broke up my husband. So, mm-hmm. you know, he said, hey, I, I know. I, I know what you're going through. 
And so he, you know, he, he gave him what he needed to, to, to get back with his family, I think. And, and it just really, really, uh, moved me and into writing this poem. It was, and I, and I, it, it just all, it was all of a piece. It all came mm. out at once. Yeah. Yeah. The best poems usually work that way. It seemed, it's kind of amazing, but to do it in a sonnet is really cool. But of course you write, um, formally all the time. And I think you sent a few sonnets this week, didn't you? I wrote several of them. I was just, I was just really inspired. Like I said, I had children who who came over from that way to, to stay at my house. They had to evacuate, and so I was really, uh, you know, concerned about people that my loved ones over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I was just thinking about it because we, you know, we have to evacuate all the time. Um, for fires. It's happened several times for us in a similar way. Like every few years or so, you have to evacuate. But it's so much easier, actually, with a fire um, because the fire only is limited to its own area and not right. an area the size of a state. So people have to evacuate. I mean, there's just so far you have to go and everybody's evacuating at once. I mean, it's, it's just, I, I can't even imagine well, what it must be like. Right, right. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. And, and the people down there in, in New Orleans, they're still, I, just today, as a matter of fact, a, a poet, a for, former Louisiana poet laureate wrote me back about the poem that you, that you put up on the Rattle website. Mm-hmm. And this poet laureate said that, that it was just on the last of the battery power on the cell phone. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And I, I don't know how long they expect it to take to clean up, but I'm sure, you know, and get back, life back to normal. It's it's probably the, the other thing that's similar to fires is that people act like, you know, once it's out of the news, it kind of out of, out of sight, out of mind. But the, the disaster right. continues for so long afterward. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, do you want to go ahead and read the poem? Sure, I will. A homeless traveling statesman. You near. And wave the wan evacuees enough to get them back to Jackson Square with bellies full of bagels and cream cheese. The sweat-soaked husband can't return your stare. They're compact, packed to bursting with the most his wife and kids were able to finagle before the hurricane could hit the coast. But gas is choice as gold, and that cheese bagel is higher than when you and I were stranded in similar surroundings. We just hope his damage doesn't match what we were handed. The hardest part is how we watch him mope and pass the bland, non-Cajun styrofoam container through her window, heading home. Yeah, just a wonderful sonnet, and um, and our hearts go out to everybody down there. I'm glad you could avoid, you know, the, the, the frightening area this time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tim. Yeah. And I should say, we're going to have you on as a guest um, whenever your when your next book comes out, whenever the, the publication date actually is. So really looking forward to that for uh, having a full show with you, Jennifer. Uh, I, I will love it. I w- I'm looking forward to it as well. Yeah. Take care and talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's see. So, um, yeah, that was Jennifer Reeser with A Homeless Traveling Statesman. And I was trying to figure out, I don't know if you heard the sirens in the background. Um, speaking of uh, evacuation and things, a fire truck just ripped by. So hopefully it's not heading to a fire. Um, anyway, 
Um, yeah, so you can find Jennifer Reeser at her website, which is Jennifer Reeser. That's Jennifer, R-E-E-S-E-R.com. So check that out. Um, her next book, um, which I'm forgetting the title at the moment, it's coming out from uh, Able Muse Press. She's also a translator of, uh, of Native American poetry. And um, so let's move on to our second poet that we have. We have a, a Tuesday poem, too. It was really hard to decide which poem... Um, to to publish on Sunday and which to do Tuesday. So I ended up just doing which one was submitted first, and it was only a day apart, so it was a difficult choice, but I just used that as a deciding factor because this one's really great too and uh, really relevant right now. Let's call it Meredith Mason with, um, with her poem that she can share. Hey, Meredith, I hear myself in the background, so X out of YouTube if you haven't yet. Okay, I think you're good. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. So um, it's great to see you. How are you doing? Good. I'm good. I'm trying to get my... Um... Oh, there we go. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. So um, I'm so glad you could join us and, and share this poem. Like I was saying, I don't know if you heard, but I, it was hard to decide which poem to do for Sunday and which for Tuesday, because they're both extremely relevant, like in the news right now topics. And, and of course, do you want to explain what your poem is about and, and what inspired writing it? And it's a poem that's been, I guess, in progress for a little bit. Yeah, so I wrote this poem um, over the summer, and a lot of it, it was just inspired mostly by, um, at the beginning, by this day, being on at the lake with my son, who was pretending he was a superhero, walking out into the waves and karate chopping the waves as they came, and um, feeling like he's like the big, strong, tough guy, and the whole time I'm holding his hand and making sure that he doesn't sink under the water. Um and it's just kind of one of those daily, you know, daily ways as a parent that we're constantly taking care of our kids and, and keeping them alive on a daily basis. Um, and it, in this moment, at the same time, my cousin, I have this cousin who's a kite surfer and he was surfing back and forth and, you know, um, jumping up 12 feet in the air. So there's kind of this little rumble of resentment um, about being this mom who's, um, you know, in this role of care while the world is sort of going on, going on around me. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, I really, um, I, I really did kind of write this poem as just describing that individual moment. Um, but the whole, the whole time, this conversation about these, uh, these heartbeat laws that we see in the news right now, that was kind of rumbling beneath the surface. And I think, you know, as this week came um, and I felt really this, you know, it's hard, yeah, just identifying these emotions of grief, of, of feeling invisible as a mother. And I think that really, um, really kind of brought me to the point of realizing that I wanted to bring in this fuller, this fuller picture of motherhood into this poem that I didn't want it to just be this individual moment. I think I had this kind of hesitation to put a child and abortion in the same poem, Mm -hmm. but some of my like process of this poem is realizing that I need to not acknowledge that, you know, a mother is that person providing that daily care. And a mother is also the person with individual needs who may need an abortion. Mm -hmm. And that was really, you know, kind of this process of making this a more whole and honest poem. Yeah, yeah. Well, we always talk about how that's the way, you know, poetry works and should operate is a a meaning-making sort of apparatus where you can try to figure out, you know, how to articulate and and make sense of your, your, your feelings and your thoughts. And this poem, in such a succinct 
and in poignant way, I think, put those thoughts together, those other, those, those complicated things that swirl around this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to go ahead and read it? Um, it's sure. Wave, Wave Man. Well, I'll put it up on screen, but you have to read your own copy. Wave Man. The bill sailed through the Senate and House, effectively banning most abortions in the state. Austin American Statesman, May 19th, 2021. Today I held my son's hand as we waded into the lake, strong wind kicking up waves on the shallow water. I'm wave man, he said, karate chopping the swell as the foam hit his face and made him sputter and I tugged him up so he wouldn't go under. Farther out, my talented cousin was doing something called kiteboarding. Back and forth, he traced graceful arcs across the surface, while high above, a taut red sail held the wind and pulled him on. Some say care comes easy to a mother. Go ahead and take it, like air. Tonight, I smoked one cigarette on the porch of the place I'm house-sitting, inhaling once like my lungs are my lungs. Yeah, just a great ending and, and a, a turn in that poem that just has so much power to it. Thanks so much for sharing that, Meredith, and for joining thank us today. You. Thanks for giving me the chance. Yeah, thank you. Have a good night. You too. Yeah, so that was uh, Meredith Mason uh, with her poem Wave Man, which will be featured on Rattle.com on Tuesday. Um, and now we're going to go to our main guest, who I mentioned is Gil Arzola. Um, I meant to tell you, warn you a little bit, if the if the uh, stream cuts out, our internet did go down once today. So if it cuts out, it was only briefly, and um, maybe, you know, I'll be right back. So if it, if it freezes, uh, wait for me. I think they're having some kind of um, maintenance on the, on the main server in town. Uh, but hopefully it's over. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to call up Gil. And then we're going to talk about um, talk to Gill and his poem, "The Death of a Migrant Worker." So hang on, uh, and we'll be back in just a minute. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, as I mentioned, our tonight's guest is Gil Arzola, the um, winner of the Rattle Chaplin Prize this year uh, for his book. I'll put it on screen. Uh, right here it is um, The Death of a Migrant Worker and um, just a powerful book of poems um, really wonderful chat book to, to share with everybody and um, a lot of feedback already on how much people have enjoyed this poem um, Gil Arzola's first book of poetry Prayers of Little Consequence was published in 2019 by Passager who named him their Poet of the Year his story Loser's Walk was nominated for a Pushcart Prize in 2018, and other work has appeared in several other magazines, Dash, Palabra, Whetstone, The Tipton Review, etc. And of course, like I said, his chapbook is The Death of a Migrant Worker, uh, which is included with all, um, with all um, issues of Rattle, if you subscribe, this fall. And here he is, Gil Arzola. Hey, Gil, how you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Um, so, um, do you want to start us out with a poem? Sure. Um, let me see. This, uh, this poem is called uh, Childhood Homes, and it's, it's out of the chapbook. Where the bushes are now, a house once was. See there, where the branches are twisted together like skinny arms hugging air? You'd think it was one thing instead of two, until you look closer and follow to its roots. 
Right there, where the branches are highest, there was a window and a boy looking out. My life is passing. The snow melts. In another day it will become water and disappear into the ground. Over there, across the field, you can count one, two, maybe three trees I used to climb. Walk there, and you can ask each blade of grass on the way to tell you my name. That was uh, Childhood Homes from, from the new chapbook, The Death of a Migrant Worker. Um, so, Gil, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in how you got into poetry, because, um, um, I, you know, you're sort of coming in and, and sort of publishing up a storm all of a sudden, um, sort of after retirement, I guess. Um, what was it that you, what drove you to poetry in the first place? I, I think, well, it wasn't poetry specifically at first. It was more like uh, short stories and that type of thing. Um, it, it was therapy. Uh, it was just a way, I, although I, I, don't, I don't know that I realized it at the time, but, you know, I've been writing since the eighth grade. And, um, uh, you know, I, I never really thought about the publication part of it. I just kind of wrote. And just, when things came to me, I wrote them. And, 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 uh, and it just so happened that although I did have some stories published and some essays, that uh, Passager was the first actual, uh, I guess, award. Mm-hmm. That uh, that got me a little bit into it a little more, and then they asked for a book, and and that's kind of how that happened. But it's just now I have time. I have mm-hmm. more time, yeah, than I used to. Yeah, and, and where did you work before? Um, what was your job? I worked for a utility company, mm-hmm. um, and I spent thirty five years there, um, so uh, doing all kinds of things, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's kind of what I did, and uh, you know, I wrote on and off. I I, I say I dabbled. I didn't really. I didn't really do it seriously. I didn't take any classes. I didn't do anything like that. I just kind of wrote and saved things, and uh, that's just kind of how that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, well, do you want to set up uh, what, what the book is about? Of course, it's about your parents and um, in, their, in their travels and, and how they ended up in Indiana, where you are now, and, and how um, and, and a way of containing and remembering their, their lives as they've passed away now. Um, do you want to just explain what their life, lives were and, and how they came to be, be migrant workers and then not be migrant workers anymore? Well, I think it was pretty typical then, uh, you know, uh, being raised in the, uh, I was born in 52, so that was the 60s. and um, it, You know, that was a typical thing that happened, in, not just in northern, in northwest Indiana, but everywhere. You know, it was uh, uh, farming was labor intensive at the time. It's nuts. I don't know that it's not so much now, but it's definitely not as much as it was. Mm-hmm. So my father was uh, raised in Bostamante, Mexico, which is... Uh, Oh, uh, just a little south, I guess, of of, New, uh, of Laredo, Texas, and my mother was raised in Robstown, Texas. So it was a it was a normal thing, uh, at least in their in their lives, to just head north. Uh, they would go in the back of trucks or in cars or or however they could go, and and they would go from farm to farm, kind of following the crops as they needed uh, as they needed workers, and. Um, the, the story goes, although I didn't know the story at the time, my mom told me that uh, my dad just kind of ended up sleeping in their yard in Robstown, Texas, as he was doing his traveling. And uh, and they, they met, uh, you know, that story, I, I never, I really don't know. Uh, yeah. But um, they ended up in northwest Indiana, married with, uh, uh, I think, three sons at the time. And, um, and he was asked to stay at the farm. I was uh, three years old at the time. And so uh, he stopped being a migrant then. Yeah, and this is the farm. We have uh, family photographs um, both on the cover 
um, and in the inside the book, a few. Um, and mm-hmm. these are actual family photographs on the farm. Um, yeah. And I know this is an amazing story to um, you know just be passing through and then meeting the love of your life and and moving on together. Um, yeah. 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 They. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, again, it was just it was just a normal type of thing, and we kind of melted into this uh, this. Uh, I was going to say society, but that's not the right word. Uh, the, this town as uh, as migrant workers who were no longer migrant workers and uh, you know just trying to kind of fit in and all that all that kind of uh, uh, stuff just I just wrote it I didn't really talk about it very much uh, it was just something that uh, I guess I, I've never been to therapy so I guess this was my therapy yeah well I you know I think poetry really is I think that's what poetry's purpose is is to uh, you know, find find that meaning that that makes things make sense, and so we don't have to carry the the luggage of those emotions with us anymore. Exactly. And um, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, well, do you yeah. want to read another poem? Let's keep the the poems coming. Okay. Um, this is called uh, Soto. Old Mexican Soto was born with a gift for staying poor. At the end of every day, he would be two hundred feet behind me in the mint fields, where we worked with thirty others pulling weeds. It was 1965, and weeding was a job for Mexicans and hillbillies who arrived every morning in a discarded school bus that was too old for hauling the hopes of school children, but capable enough to take us from field to endless field. Mexican women wearing straw hats gossiped, young men whose youth still covered them like the sweat on their backs dreamt. Every morning, as if no bird could begin its singing, as if no sun would rise without us, we began together. When the clouds were still low and when the sun had just begun to melt the dew, we grabbed our hoes and picked a row as silently as sinners choosing a pew. Minding our chores and minding our own business, we dispatched the weeds and volunteers like unwelcome guests. Always beginning together, by 10 o'clock old Mexican soda was only a shadow behind me. When I turned, he was something brown against the green mint and his hair was as black as the dirt between rows. Sometimes he'd stand and pull a red handkerchief from his back pocket, and with great ceremony he'd wipe his brow like he was erasing mistakes from a chalkboard. The handkerchief was the only part of him colored bright. The rest was brown and shades of that. Soto was round like a barrel, his brown skin worn like old leather, his chin coming to a point at the bottom of his long face. That's all I remember. Two hundred feet behind me, old Mexican soda was still in the fields when I left, born with a gift for staying poor and dreaming of payday Fridays, cold beer, and quitting time. He stayed. And that was uh, Soto from The Death of a Migrant Worker. Um, and so I, I think that you said earlier, um, we were talking before, that, that you grew up on the farm, right? Like, wasn't your house right there on the farm? Well, it was a it was a large farm, and there were, of course, there were farms all over the place. But there was probably three or four um, very large farmers, and uh, that's where we were. We were on one of them, and so we stayed in houses that he owned, um, and so I I don't know, I guess we would call us tenants. But um, it was just part of the salary where he didn't pay any rent and he, you know electricity and that type of thing. So we just stayed there at those, uh, yeah. So. And it was, and again, it was typical. My father was, um, you know, he was of the mind that, uh, you know, at uh, 11 years old, uh, 
you know, you should be helping, uh, you know, pay the bills mm -hmm. and, and feed the family. So in the summers, uh, you know, as soon as we were 11 and 12, uh, we were in the fields and we were doing whatever they wanted us to do. Uh, from uh, that, that poem was about weeding fields, and and at that time again, um, that was that was the typical thing that that migrant workers did, and uh, it was that uh, irrigating fields, uh, uh, somewhat harvesting the, the crops. The potatoes were big then, and that type of thing. So yeah, I was raised there. Yeah, and and then um, and I think I read too that you were one of the only Mexican kids in the school when you went to school, right? Well, there, there, you know, again, um, there was probably three families that I recall mm -hmm. that stayed all year long uh, in the community. Uh, and, and I mean, you know, as a kid, you know, the, the last thing you want to do is be uh, be different. Mm -hmm. You want to kind of melt into the uh, into the background if you can, and it, you know, it was difficult and. And there was there was some I don't I don't mean to say that the community was uh, was bigoted or prejudiced. There were some very nice, kind people and and uh, uh, that helped me a lot. But there were there were in those days uh, a lot, there was a lot of bigotry and it, it was pretty much uh, a little more acceptable than it is now, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one of the stories I tell is you know the first grade when when uh, when the teacher just assumed that we were going to be gone once the the crops were. So they never paid much attention to us, or at mm -hmm. least not to me. And I, I, I remember how uh, how angry I was at that, and uh, and also that you know coming in from recess. One of the stories that just you know I always tell that it sticks in my head forever is uh, we would have to line up and wash our hands after recess, and she came to me and said, "You better wash your hands again because I can't tell when you're clean." Mm -hmm. yeah, and that kind of stuff just. Uh, you know that that kind of drove me to do what I did, and uh, but yeah, that was that was the uh, community I was I grew up in. Yeah, did did it ever like get better over time? Was it more accepting? Oh yeah, I mean, again, again, I be I just um, you know I was I was a typical kid, and and I you know my friends I had good friends, popular friends, athletic friends. Uh, it, it was I that was more of what was inside of me. It wasn't something that I shared with anybody, or you know. But from time to time. Um, something would happen that would remind me that, hey, uh, uh, you know, you're not like the rest of these people. You're, you are uh, different. And I remember a teacher, too, telling me one time, uh, I think this was in the fifth grade, um, you're going to have to work harder than everybody else to get the same thing. And at the time, I didn't really understand what he was saying. But it finally, you know, later on it occurred to me, you know, you're right, because you, you, you walk into a room and you're immediately judged as something uh, – with, without uh, you know any proof you know you're convicting without without proof you know yeah but it did get better yes it, mm -hmm. it definitely did yeah and I think you um I heard you tell another story um about how the, the teacher like assumed you weren't were in the good reading group right and, yeah. and then you used you used that as motivation my, really right that's to... one of my go-to stories when I uh, <laughs> when I coach or, or talk to people uh yeah she divided us up and um you know, there was the red birds and the blue birds. And, and of course, you know, I, what I always say is, you know, we were, we were young, but we weren't stupid. We knew, we knew what she was doing. You know, at least I did, you know, the blue birds were the good readers and the red birds were the bad ones. And, and I was immediately in the red bird group, um, which again, uh, I tell the kids that I coach, uh, I could have responded a number of ways. One, I could have just curled up into a little ball, but instead I got angry. And I said, you know, by the end of this year, I'm going to be the best reader in this room. Mm -hmm. And us, 
And it, it was just, uh, you know, it was, it was just an annoying thing for her to believe that I just was not going to be as good a student uh, just because I was a Mexican. You know, that just, it was very annoying uh, to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great story, though, for, for coaching and, and for, for taking things head on, I guess. Um, and maybe a little later, I think we should talk about, about coaching and sports and stuff. But let's hear another poem before, uh, before we keep going. And I should say, too, if anybody has any questions for Gil... Um, leave them in the chat window on either Facebook or YouTube, and I will pass them along later in the show. Um, and also, Gil, I, I hear, I don't know if people can hear at home, it just might be my good microphone or he- headphones, but I hear like a, a motorish kind of noise. Do you, uh, do you hear anything there? I think what you hear is the, uh, the tree frogs and the crickets. Oh, really? <laughs> outside the window. Interesting. Yeah. I don't yeah. know, that's strange. Cause it's a, uh, it sounds like a, like a motor or a blender or something. Uh, there's no motor or blender here. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, okay. anyway, um, maybe it might just be in my, uh, in my headphones. Maybe the lines are crossed. It's strange. Um, but anyway, let's hear uh, the next poem that you want to share. Uh, I just want to kind of, uh, kind of preface this one a little bit. It's called My Father's Tools. Um, my father was a very simple man. He didn't own very much. Uh, but one of the things he was really... Uh, uh, he really hung on to was his tools. He loved these tools. This was called my father's tools. Beneath a workbench built into a corner, beneath a workbench whose top is marked and cut by a thousand things that needed fixing. Beneath a workbench as heavy as thunderclouds in July bringing rain, my father's toolbox waits for something to mend. My father is dead and can't fix anything now. Thirty summers ago, he came to my house and we fixed the brakes. He pulled at stubborn nuts and bolts and asked for hammers. His toolbox had everything we needed, and we sweated together. We fixed the brakes. My father is dead. We can't fix anything now. And that was my, my father's tools from the, the chapbook. Um, so I did want to talk about, about baseball, because I don't, I don't talk to many people who are um, sports people on the Rattlecast. And, and you were a, a softball coach for a long time and you have mm-hmm. a book on um, fast pitch softball, um, you know, pitching techniques. Yeah. And, and I just find that so interesting because I, I always feel like baseball is such a poetic sport in the way that, um, it, it's the perfect game. It's it, geometrically the, perfect. Yes. In the way that it's um, reactionary too. like, like yeah. when you're writing, you're sort of in this space where you're not being self-conscious and uh, the other sport I have to play now because I'm older is tennis because that's all people play. And I go, go go to golf later, but um, but in tennis you're, you're you're rallying and you're like sort of thinking and you can't stop your thoughts. But in baseball, there's something about um, the way that you just have to react so fast that, that, that there's a no thought kind of thing going on, mm-hmm. which makes it a, a meditative type thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. Can you just talk a little bit about what what baseball has brought to your poetry? Um, because it, it's just interesting here and, and coaching too and, and work ethic and things like that, which I think probably come through in the writing process as well. How do those things relate? Uh, they really don't. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I got into coaching because of my daughter and, uh, and basically to protect her because I thought she wasn't going to be very good mm-hmm. as she, turned, as it turned out, she be, she was very good and actually played in college. So, and then I just kind of got into it. It just, uh, I don't golf, I don't play tennis, I don't do anything else, but it was just something that I found, uh, uh, it was just, it was just something that I was, I was good at, if I can brag on myself a little bit, and, uh, and then just kind of followed her through, as she went through high school, and actually, 
uh, coached her until she was 23 years old and uh, ended up coaching a couple colleges. Uh, and even last year I, I coached at a, at a college, but uh, they were different lives, you know, I mean, uh, my, my life as a, as a utility worker and my life as a coach and my life as a writer were entirely different. Although um, I think what, what coaching did for me is it, it took away some of the, uh, uh, it made me a little more, a little less sensitive to what's going on around me all the time. You know, I, I don't take things so as personal as I used to. And I think the kids, the kids did that to me. They, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I really can't, I've written a few stories about softball, baseball and softball, but I don't think they, uh, they relate. I mean, I can talk to you about softball forever. I've been doing it 35 years, but it, it is extremely reactive and, and it comes from a, uh, from a place you practice so much so that it becomes instinctive. That's part of the deal. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I listening to these other poets that you had on before where they kind of, they seem to come up with a thought and actually write a poem based on that thought. I really don't do that. I oh, just kind of, oh. it just kind of comes to me. Hmm. And I'm not sure that I have a subject in mind. I just kind of write. So I do get in a, a kind of a zone. And um, and once I'm in that zone, it's, uh, it's a little tough to get out of it, you hmm. know. But can you talk a little bit? That, that's fascinating, though. That, that what you said about um, like get, getting into the zone, being your writing practice, and not knowing where you're going to go, and then not being able to get out of the zone. I mean, both of those things are interesting. So, so say more about that. Like, what is the zone? Like, what? How do you get there? And what it is? What is it? It's it's a little bit easier for me now um, to to sit down and write and kind of get in there and um, and just. Um, kind of stay there and and then get myself out and get myself in um, but I don't I, I don't know it's hard to describe I just kind of uh, again I, it, sometimes it's just a line it, it's just a or a, a word or a, you know some some memory like uh, the childhood homes was just I went back to look at the house where we lived at one point and it wasn't there anymore you know it, it was gone so that kind of just nudged me in that direction but again I didn't start out, you know, saying, you know, I think I want to write about my my old house. I just started writing, and and then, but I I, I do rewrite. I don't want to sound like I'm, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, medium or genius or anything. I, I rewrite constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, uh, again, even the chapbook. Uh, once I once I wrote it, I didn't look at it again, and then I looked at it again. I rewrote it, and then I rewrote it again, and rewrote it again. And you know as well as I do when you edit it and, and uh, had other people look at it, you know, changes uh, constantly. But uh, again, it's just, uh, I don't know how to describe it. I just kind of get into that mode and I'm just in there. I, you know. And how long have you been doing that? Like, is it only, you know, since you retire and have been writing more frequently? Or, or even when you were younger, did you feel that way about writing? No, I think, I think that when I was young, I was just talking to a, a nephew who, who wants to be a poet and uh, has had no success at it. And I told him that when I was young, the problem was um, there was too much to say. As someone, as someone told me one time, it was trying to, uh, trying to get a drink of water from a fire hose. There was too much going on. I could, you know, just build out. I was everywhere. I was, and, and now uh, that I have a little more time, I think I have time to kind of settle into it. Where, you know, when you're working and you're raising kids and, you know, you got to move along, you, do, you don't have... You don't have that kind of time to uh, 
and again, I you know I never went to any classes. I wasn't, uh, you know, I don't have a master of fine arts or anything like that. I just I just kind of write. I don't know anything about stanzas or rhythms or whatever else. Uh, I just kind of wrote. But now, I, yeah, I think it's quieter now that I have a little more time, mm-hmm. and I can and I can and I can free up three or four hours of just, you know, writing. Yeah, yeah, that's really great to hear because that was what you know the the whole point of Rattle when it was founded twenty five years ago was to have a place. Um, for poets who weren't, you know, in MFA programs and weren't going through all the classes and having access to all that stuff and then having their writing style shaped by it. But just the idea that poetry is a central thing to human experience and it's really important and has value for, for everybody. It doesn't matter um, what degrees or, or what schools you went to or things like that or how many places you've been published. And so, um, yeah, so it was really great to read your your book, which was so um, well written in such a clean and, and sort of raw type way which is exactly what we always look for. I even said, like, this is a rattle-style book as we were looking at the manuscript. And so... Um, education gets in the way sometimes. You begin, you begin to think too much about what you're doing. Uh, you know, I, 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 among my other things I did was uh, play guitar, and uh, one of the best guitar players I ever, I ever met uh, went to school and came back a worse guitar player. <laughs> because now he was thinking about it too much. He, he had learned too much, and he wanted to keep everything within that the parameters of what he'd learned rather than just playing. And so, you know, I, and, and poetry to me, Tim, is just, you take from it what you want. You know, it's, it's like art, you know, I'm not a, a, a you know, like I, I was telling somebody the other day, you know, E.E. E. Cummings, I, I like, I think he's a good poet. He's a great poet, but it's, that's not my thing. You know, that's just not what I, what I, but, but that doesn't mean he's not a good poet. It's just, it's not my thing. Just like I, I don't really care for hard rock. You know, that's just the way it is. So you take from it what you want. And if you don't mm-hmm. get anything out of it, well, go read somebody else, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's a great attitude, too. And it reminds me of the, the way that um, a lot of times there'll be, you know, when we accept a poem to publish it, there'll be like a certain section that feels off. And um, and I'll say like, oh, I think we need to revise this section. Like something doesn't feel right about this. Can you like, we'll accept this poem for the magazine, but but we got to work on this. And then um, it's happened many times where they send me the original draft, and that was the stanza that was heavily workshopped at their MFA program and had all those sort of ideas imposed upon it, and it became sort of this, like, you know, stew of ideas instead of the heart of the poem. And, and that's, right. what, um, that's what I think people are loving about your chapbook is that the heart sings through without that kind of thing getting in the way. Well, thank you. Um, thank do, you want to, do you want to read another poem? What do you want to read next? This is called A Poor Woman, A Poor Mexican Woman Makes Supper. And uh, this is kind of my mother. She measures nothing. She tosses flour like confetti, grabs like hope handfuls of this, like dreams a pinch of that. The kitchen smelled of tortillas, rice, and beans when I was young. The smell came through the rusting brown screens of migrant camp cabins and found us outside. It smelled of hope simmering. It smelled of luck run out. That was a poor Mexican woman makes supper. And um, and that's a poem about uh, your mom. And I, one of the things I was hoping to do, because one of the things that makes the, the book of poetry work so well here, I think, is that it feels so intimate. Like, it feels like you're actually speaking to your parents and saying, like, what you needed to say in a very personal way. But in a way that's also, like, it doesn't give us their whole stories. Um, you know, we get this really intimate sort of conversation between your parents and yourself. Um, so can you just explain, sort of broaden a little bit about what your parents were like? Um, you know, what, 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 your, what were your mom and dad like? 
my father was an intelligent man, um, but he um, he wasn't an ambitious man, and and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean he was a hard worker, but um, he was of the mind that you should be uh, grateful for what you have, and uh, and that was enough. And uh, my mother probably was a little more ambitious, but she was a, a woman of the times when you know a woman stayed home and cooked and didn't say a lot and didn't have much opinion and so on. And she, you know, just as an example, she never drove. She didn't mm-hmm. never learn to drive. Um, but growing up, there were nine of us. Okay, um, there wasn't a lot of hugging going on. There wasn't a lot of uh, uh, you know discussions about uh, current events or how you doing in school and that kind of stuff. It was just kind of living life. Uh, it wasn't until we had gone uh, that I had gone actually, and um, that that I got to know them a little better. But my mother was as true a Christian woman as there's ever lived. She she believed and lived and walked the walk forever. Um, uh, my father, uh, <laughs> I think he, he he was Christian long enough to, uh, to to get what he wanted. You know what I mean? I mean he was just he's kind of like me, uh, <laughs> you know. But anyway, uh, they were good people. They were just hardworking, simple people. They weren't. Uh, and, and that's the other thing, you know. Um, People pass that way through this world constantly, you know, that don't make a fuss and we don't build statues to them. And uh, But they were, they, you know, they were just normal people who worked hard and, and raised raised good children. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what do you, I mean, you have siblings. Um, what do they think about, about the book and about, about you writing about your family? Do they, they talk, do you talk about it? Has it opened up well, things for them or, or not? I hope they. I hope they see that you know what I'm trying to do. I, I don't. Really, I haven't talked in depth with them. Um, you know, an interesting thing is uh, it was like two separate families. You know, I would say uh, uh, the three older brothers uh, had uh, very different lives than the younger ones. It, you know, things changed. Uh, became they became more acclimated and, and were more of. A, you know, accepted in the community and that kind of thing. So they didn't see the thing, same things we did. They didn't go in the fields at 12 years old. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to do that kind of stuff. But um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I hope they like it. Um, I haven't really talked to them about it. I, I'm going to write it anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, let's hear another poem. Um, I want to make sure we get through these. Um, okay. This, um, my, my mother passed away and... Uh, you know, because of COVID, there was only a, a couple of people go, go into rooms. So I was in the room with her one day and, uh, you know, she she was uh, sleeping and waking up and so on. But when she woke up one one uh, one time, she just kind of stared at a wall as if she saw something in the wall. And this is called My Mother Stares at Walls. I don't know what she sees, my mother who is dying. Her eyes open and she stares at walls. Maybe this is how it goes. After 89 years, I think maybe the wall becomes a movie. The windows turn into mirrors. And so she stares. But I don't know what she sees, my mother who is dying, what she feels or remembers, or how she adds it up now that it's time to do the math. When sleep comes, I want to ask, what do the dying dream? That was my mother stares at walls, which kind of gets toward the um, the other heart of the book, I think is um just just what uh, what is a life you know i mean that kind of big question is what it seems like you're asking throughout the book and and about um about yourself too as well as your your parents um 
and, and what do you think um, about about what life is and, and what we're here to do? Um, that those are the kind of things that sort of you know move through your mind as you're reading this book. Well, I um, you know I, I am kind of a nerd in that regard. I read a lot, and and uh, you know well, my best friend is a doctor, and, and so we talk about this type of stuff a lot. But um, two two things have come come to mind right away. Either everything we do is important, or none of it is. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, we're either all connected or we're not connected at all. And uh, whether there's a God or not a God is not for me to say. I use the tools I was given. Uh, I can provide no proof. So I'm just, I think that, I think that the best way to put it is if we can, if we can make this place a little better than what we found, uh, you know, then that, that, that has to be the purpose, you know, just, just try to do a little bit of good, you know, um, or like, uh, I can't think of the writer now, but if you can keep your head when all those around you are losing theirs, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's that's maybe the true test, you know, in all this chaos noise, if you can retain a little bit of humanity. So um, as I go through here, you know, I'm just trying to uh, to note a couple uh, a couple of lives who did leave the planet a little better than they found it. Yeah. And again, not that they're special or, or any more special than anyone else, but um they were my parents. Mm-hmm. There's a question here from um, Peter King Badger O'Donohue, who says, can I ask Gil about class in poetry? Here in Ireland, poetry is very much a middle-class sport. All the terms and conditions, the references of place and things and food and ideas and ideals are middle-class. It's hard for a working-class person. Um, let's see. Lost the thing. It's hard for a working class person with different points of reference to be heard we have to be louder more insistent and that can be tiring we are kind of ginger rogers doing everything just as good but backwards and in high heels whilst the fred astaire's just waltz on in is it the same in america so so that that brings up a really interesting question too um just just how is somebody who hasn't been through the programs and hasn't you know and starting out later in life publishing um, how have you been met, and, and how does how does class feel to you as it relates to poetry? Because that's something that does always bother me. And, and again, one of the things we set out at Rattle to try to do differently by not not judging people based on that whatsoever. Well, again, I don't really care too much about that. Um, you know, I don't I don't write to be published. If you know, obviously, I send things away to, to be published. But if they're not, I don't think I'm upset or or or, or think any less of what I've written. Um, I, you know, I I really don't. That's I think that might be why I don't I don't join writers groups. I don't I don't do that type of thing. Uh, I don't want to sit there and, and dissect your stuff or my stuff because it's it's stuff. And again, you know, uh, like going to an art museum. You know, you take what take what you want from every picture that you see. And if you don't see anything there, then go on to the next room. But um, I don't think of it as as a class thing. I don't think that. Uh, you know, getting a master of fine arts makes you a better writer necessarily, and I and I do think that uh, someone who's uh, who's and I, I was going to say suffered, but that might not be the the right word. Somebody who's kind of lived a less than idyllic life uh, might be a better writer, mm-hmm. uh, just because uh, it is therapy. You know, you're putting it down because there's something happened to you, and and uh, you're trying to get get it off your off your chest. So you can keep moving, so you can uh, keep your head about you, you know. So you know, I 
I, I'm sorry for that in Ireland. I didn't know that, but I don't. I don't really think about that here. Yeah. Well, the thing that I always notice just here is that there's so many things like writers retreats and, and things yes. where you can, if you have the money to go for exactly. like two weeks and don't have to work, you can go meet with you know with some fancy writers and in a big group, and then, and it's such an experience that if you can't afford it. Um, and then the other thing is the submission fees, which which we don't have um, because I, I don't I don't agree with that kind of thing. I don't think there should be any kind of barriers to publishing mm -hmm. it because we're nonprofits after all. But those are the yeah. two things that worry me just about, you know, I mean, one of the beautiful things about poetry is that there's no academic bar to access it, you know, that, right. that anybody can any everybody has a voice, a language that they speak and everybody can write it down. And there's very there should be very little in the way. And so anytime well, there's anything in the way, it kind of stands that, out, isn't it? Isn't sports kind of the same way, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah. in softball with the, the travel teams and all that stuff, and and they, you know they price the other they price kids out of it. Um, again, I I don't know that I would enjoy those retreats. I don't know that I would enjoy sitting around talking to some famous writer. I'm glad he's famous and I'm happy for him, but that doesn't mean anything to me necessarily. You know, I'll read his book. I cannot tell you how many how many poetry books I have, Tim, mm -hmm. and. Uh, I read them, and uh, maybe they've won awards and and been you know uh, acclaimed, but I don't particularly like it. So I just go on to the next one and and see. Uh, I'm sure there are very a lot of very talented poets that aren't published at all. But so so again, maybe uh, it's a luxury for me that I don't really care whether I'm published or not. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I think that's just the the perfect way to look at it. So I love hearing you say that. Um, uh, so, so what do you do as far as like, you know, learning how to approach a poem and, and what do you read that sort of informs the way you write? Like, how has your schooling been since you haven't been through any kind of programs or anything? I think it's just been reading. Uh, I was, I, I loved to read. Of course, we couldn't afford books. So I spent a lot of time in the North Judson Public Library. I'll just give them a little plug here. But, um, you know, so I would go there and I would just spend hours reading and I just always loved books. Uh, my house is full of books. I, you know, I, I have trouble letting them go. Um, and so uh, my education's all been reading. Mm -hmm. uh, I just read, and, and I when I get something that I like, I just kind of, I'm sure I've been influenced by some poets. Um, uh, Stafford, is that correct? Mm -hmm. uh, can't think of it. Yeah, I really like his stuff. Uh, uh, Nye, I can't think of her name right now. Um, Naomi? Naomi Nye. Yeah. I like her a lot. Um those two, uh, but I think I'm more Robert Frost than I am E. e. Cummings. Uh, I just like poetry that doesn't try to hide a meaning. Tell me what you're trying to say, and, and you know, maybe I can take something out of it. Mm -hmm. Not that there's, again, not that there's anything wrong with that other part. You know, if that's what you like and that's that's your thing, then God bless you. It's just not fine. Yeah. Yeah, well, what's interesting is that your poems are very uh, storytelling oriented, but then you said that you don't really know what you're, you know, st st setting out to write as you start. Um, no. th does the story sort of come to you as you're going into the poem? Is that how that works? Yeah, and, and not that I get too mystical, but uh, sometimes they I, they just come in my, you know, I'm, I'm half asleep and I just think it just comes to me and I just write it down in a little note and in the morning I hope it reminds me what I was trying to say. Um, uh, there was a, a poem that a uh, passenger published that was that way. It just came, kind of came to me. Uh, Why my mother believes it's called, but you know, it, it just kind of came to me. But um, no, I just start to begin. I, I mean, I think 
when I write a story or an essay, I do have a certain a, a thought in mind, something that I'm going to to say. But um, and that might be why the poems are kind of like storytelling, because mm-hmm. I began at first not poetry but writing kind of stories yeah. and essays about things that had happened. And why do you think you shifted to, to more writing poetry? Well, I really haven't shifted more. I've just not been published as much <laughs> in that. So I have, I have a lot of writing that uh, uh, you know hasn't found a home yet. But again, uh, that's just the way it is. Poetry just seemed to be uh, where I landed and and was published first. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, well, let's hear uh, the next one. Why don't you do uh, the raking of leaves, and then we'll we'll move on to your your other book too, which I want to cover a little bit. Okay. The Raking of Leaves Every day the colors grow softer, the days more sympathetic. I've gathered all my things and put them into boxes. That will make it easier for you to carry out. I understand the way things end now, why leaves change colors, the reasons that they fall. Sixty-eight times I've watched it happen, and now I imagine what I can't see. I remember what I can't have again. The cleaning up is all that's left to do. The raking of leaves, orange and red, yellow and brown, collected and made into piles where the wind will take them eventually and leave us to marvel at the patterns they make. And that was the raking of leaves, kind of poem about poetry, really, and and why this book is written, it felt to me. Um, Did you know that you were going to write a book about your parents? Um, Did you know, or did that just come out naturally, too? No, I didn't know. I it, again, it just came out naturally, and and I think when I submitted it to you, I submitted it with that first with the cover picture, mm-hmm. which which I wasn't sure if that was a no no or not, but I liked the picture a lot, and uh, and it just kind of began. But you know, uh, no, there was no uh, thought of hey, this is going to be about my parents. It just you know just kept writing, and and that's kind of how it worked out. It just go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, you included two um, two other poems from your previous book, which I, I haven't had a copy of it and didn't have a chance to read. Um, so, can you introduce like what what that book was about and how is it different from the subject matter of of um, the death of a migrant worker and uh, uh, and, and how that came to be too? Well, uh, again, a passenger uh, called me and told me that I was their poet of the year, and uh, I I think what that entailed is they were going to publish. Uh, I want to say six poems or something in one of their issues. And and then from that, they wanted to see more. And from that was born a book. Uh, <clears throat> the book is, is a little more about lots of things, uh, but a lot of poetry about, you know, growing up uh, Mexican-American and, and my parents. So uh, there's kind of a little bit of both, uh, you know, just other things and that. Um, uh, you know, they, they were very nice to me and very kind in, 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 in publishing this book. So, yeah, I don't know that there's a theme in that one necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, do you want to read one of the poems? Um, I don't know which one you wanted to read first. Uh, Father? Sure, yeah. Okay. Write this down. My father left nothing on this planet. The sweat off his brow falling like a single drop of rain raised the dust when it fell and was miserable a moment later, joined to something no argument could change. He planted some corn once. It has become something else, too. Even those who were there have trouble remembering how he walked, where he was headed. There's no way to track him now, 
no footprints to follow, a sign of what was important to him, what mattered. Whispered away like milkweed floats away in a breeze, whispered and whispered again, softer and softer, until finally you hear nothing. And that was Father from um, Prayers of Little Consequence, Gil's first book that just came out just a, uh, two years ago from a Passenger Press. Um, there's a, a question from Jennifer Reeser, who's still still watching from the very beginning. And she said, um, she says, I love Mr. Arzola's actual physical layouts on the page as well. She says they're nice and visually appealing. I guess it's not a question, but it's a comment that makes me lead me to a question. How do you decide to lay out the poems the way you do? Because you do move lines around the page and it feels very uh, intuitive. Is there any, any, any method to that madness? Intuitive might be a great word for that. Um, maybe it's a, uh... I don't know. They just feel right. You know, I mean, it's, that's not a good answer. I'm sure it's not what she was looking for. It, it just if if it doesn't look right to me, as far as just glancing at it, uh, this line needs to move this way or that way. Um, I just I just write it down and, and try to get it to where it's. I don't know. I mean, again, it's just it's just visual to me how it how it appeals to me visually without reading it. Does it look like, you know, something you'd want to read? I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Again, I wish I was trained better. I probably, there's probably a phrase in some class that tells you how to do that, but I don't know what that is. So, sorry. <laughs> no, no. I, I don't know that there is a phrase for, for moving around um, the, the lines like that. Um, but but everything... Put them by themselves. I'll put a, a line by itself because I think that line's important. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I do do that. I see, I, you know... And sometimes I want one word to lead lead you into the other, mm -hmm. um, so I do think about that a little bit. Yeah. But no, I don't. And, and you know, I always wonder about that. You know, I, I did go to college and and uh, and I remember arguing with a professor of English about about poetry and saying, you know, because she wanted she wanted you to, um, I think it was a Robert Frost poem or something. She wanted you to tell you to to write an essay about what Robert Frost meant. And I said, well, the only person who knows what Robert Frost meant is Robert Frost. I don't know what he meant. I can tell you what I think he means. Mm -hmm. Of course, I didn't do well in that class, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, I just, I just kind of write. I don't really mm -hmm. have it. Do, do you, do you know what you mean? Like, do you, do you, do you sort of have an idea of what the poems are about all the time, or are some things remain a mystery to you? Yeah. Well, let's go back to the raking of leaves. You thought it was about what. You said something. Um, yeah, about the the way that we organize a life, I guess is how I'd put it. And and then and then it seemed like the raking of leaves, like piles of leaves, could be almost like poems. And uh, and and putting these book this book of poems together felt like that. Well, in my mind, the raking of leaves was all the days of my life. Mm -hmm. and I was I was putting all my my life together in one pile, and then how it would just be blown away yeah. by the wind. Mm -hmm. And and that was what I was talking about. So again, uh, are you wrong or am I wrong? No, no. You take from it what you want, or what you what you feel, and and that's perfectly okay. Yeah. Um. Well, let's see. We have. Um. um let Let me ask you too. Uh, what is uh? What else are you working on? Like you said, you have piles of things. Do you have a novel? Uh, your stories? Are you still working on publishing things out? Like, what are you going to do next? Well, right now I, I'm trying to find a home for a, a group of, uh, of essays, uh, essays slash stories. So they're, they're partially true and partially uh, 
fiction, and I'm just trying to, to get, group them together in some manageable way. Um, uh, being a softball coach, I, I have a group of stories about sports, hmm. uh, you know, things that have happened, uh, you know, coaching and, and watching sports. I have another group of stories just about, uh, you know, again, being Mexican-American and, and things that happen there. But uh, uh, my wife insists I have a novel in me. I don't know that I do, and I, I'm not sure where it is because I can't find it. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if it's because my attention span isn't good enough to uh, actually uh, <laughs> write a 200-page uh, novel. But, you know, again, I, I'm not going to be too concerned about it. I'm just going to let it uh, kind, kind of come. I sent it off occasionally. I just sent, I just sent that group of uh, essays off um, uh, I guess what I need is I need an agent to just take care of all that for me because I, I don't know how to do it. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe an agent's watching. If any agents are watching, call up Gil. <laughs> yeah. Call me when you don't. Well, let, let's close it out with one last poem, Gil. Um, I think you wanted to read the other poem from the book. Or from, um, yes. Prayers. This is from, from The Prayers of Little Consequence. It's called Behind the Barracks. My father loved three sports. Only two were real, and one was against the law. He loved the Cubs, Bernie and Billy in the disaster of 69. Friday nights, he squinted into a 12-inch Motorola at gorgeous George and Dick the Bruiser and yelled into it as if you could holler loud enough to chase away fate. And on Sunday afternoons behind migrant barracks, he stood in a circle of brown-skinned men watching cockfights. On Sunday afternoons beneath clouds like soft white feathers, the fields were quiet except for the echo of shiny brown faces yelling into its gray, and the dirt, the color of blood from a rooster, with no choice but to fight. Yeah, just another another great poem. I mean, there's just so much is contained um, in, in such in, in pretty short poems. Um, just beautiful stuff, Gil, and just great talking to you. It's been a lot of fun, um, everything I hoped it would be. Uh, thanks for being a guest today and for publishing this wonderful book with us. Well, thank you for, for publishing it. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, again, hopefully we'll we'll get to meet someday. Yeah, yeah, definitely. My pleasure when we do. Thanks, Gil. Okay. So that was uh, Gil Arzola with uh, his book, which all subscribers to Rattle are going to be getting if you haven't gotten it yet. It's right here. Um, this is uh, this is uh, the death of a Mexican or the death of a migrant worker uh, by Gil Arzola, and then of course we have uh, more photos of Gil and his family throughout the book. Um, just a beautiful collection. That that uh, opening poem, um, which we published online a couple days ago, is one of my favorite too. And then his other book uh, was uh, "Prayers of Little Consequence." So you can find um, you can find the chapbook, "The Death of a Migrant Worker," um, by subscribing to Rattle. So all you have to do is go to rattle.com and subscribe. If you don't have a copy yet, it comes free with a subscription. Um, for prayers of little consequence, you can find the book at Passager Books. That's P A S S A G R Passager books.com so find it there pick up copies of each um and you really love these because these are just wonderful books uh, and gil's a wonderful guy so uh, great to talk to him and uh thanks everybody for joining in now we're going to go to a quick break and then we're going to go to open lines now the prompt for this week was um right here the prompt was write a poem set in a time period of at least 100 years ago so that was the prompt for this week if anybody has one and um, you can also send poems about anything else you'd like, though. Um, you can send poems uh, for Poets Respond, news poems about current events. You can send poems um, 
that you've recently had published and want to share, anything you'd like to do, feel free to share on the open lines. I'll tell you how to do it right now. Um, it is right here. So email your poem first if you have any. To open mic, that's open M-I-C at rattle.com. Then call it over Skype or the phone to read. Um, over Skype, send me a chat message to Rattle Poetry, all one word. That's Rattle Poetry, all one word. Um, over the phone, it's 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. And um, just call and let it ring a few times, then hang up, and I will call you back. Those are the two ways you get on the call list. Just pick one or the other, and um, we'll get you on online. So um, I'm going to take a quick break, like I said, stretch my legs. I will be right back. You can uh, refill your beverages and all that stuff um, in just a moment. Thanks so much for your patience as I get things set up. I was, to be honest, I was trying to see if I could um, edit my poem in time um, to share my poem for the prompt. Um, and in 30 seconds in between the break, is enough time to edit. I, I sort of cranked it out and um, right before the show started. And um, I wasn't, it wasn't quite done. Like the ending didn't quite click. And I thought I would share it if I could find, um, you know, in, in the 30 seconds I had, if I could... Um, finish up that last line but i couldn't finish up that last line so i'm gonna i'll share my my um history poem next week um and uh megan doesn't have a poem either so we're just gonna go straight to open lines we're both kind of a little um brain foggy from reading all the uh contest submissions you know is it the poetry rattle poetry prize uh, results are going to be announced september 15th and uh that is a lot of poems to read and you're it's hard to write your own when you have so many poems swimming in your head um, you know, normally, I mean, you know, four hours a day of reading we can deal with, but when you have to do like eight, it gets kind of, uh, kind of mushy up there for writing your own stuff at least. Um, so let's see who would like to share poems first. Um, let's call up, let's see, uh, let's call up Richard Westheimer. Um, who else do we have? Angela Gartner said she would like to share, um, Nivedita Karthik asked us to read a poem for her, so we'll do that. Uh, Julian Matthews is here, so um, the usual gang. Thanks so much for, for joining me and sharing your work with us, as always. Um, let's see. Colette O'Donohue says she has a poem. She emailed me. Um, so, yeah, so so Colette, email me the actual poem, and then you can either call in or just, just say that, can you read this for me? I'd be happy to read it for you as well. So either way... Um, where, where you emailed it, I got that message. Just include the poem and, and tell me what you want me to do or, or call in through Skype. Because um, I think you said earlier you're, you're in Ireland, so um, it would have to be Skype, I think, because the international call would be expensive. Um, anyway, let's call up uh, Richard Westheimer first. I think he was the first person to ask. Good evening, Mr. Westheimer. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I, I, I was wanting more talk about baseball because <laughs> um, when baseball returned last year I first of all I couldn't find a damn radio and you know baseball on the radio is mm-hmm. yeah it's classic. Know, I didn't have a radio <laughs> but yeah for me baseball you know like innings are like verses and pitches are like words you know it's like all these stories unfolding and adding up to a to a season so yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, there's so much, um, I don't know, there's so much rich metaphor there. And there's some great baseball poems, but there really aren't that many. I mean, there's, um, 
Um, I don't know. I mean, I can think of a few, although I'm drawing a blank on the one I'm thinking of right now. P.H. Fairchild has a great one. Um, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's my favorite baseball poem. And, mm. uh, and we, you know, we've published some at Rattle. But, um, you know, I mean, the intersection between sports fans and poetry fans isn't, isn't that much of a Venn diagram overlap, I guess. You don't get as many poems about baseball as, as you might, might otherwise. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, great poems and great interview. I loved getting the, the chapbook and that opening poem. It's just like, phew, Yeah, yeah. I mean, something. yeah, and definitely if you, uh, if you enter a manuscript for everybody out there, uh, if you enter a manuscript, put, your, put a poem like that at the beginning because then you're like, whoa. <laughs> it, it clears out that brain fog I mentioned earlier, and you are definitely locked in when you read a poem like that. Um, right. So, so what do you want to share with us tonight, Richard? Uh, so um, I did email you a little revised version of my Poets Respond poem. Okay, is that the uh, wolf hunt? Uh, no, that was from a couple weeks ago. If oh. there's time, I'd read that one too. But it's the incomplete and partially factual portrait of my mother that is entirely true. Yeah, I remember, I remember reading this on a, in Poets Respond this weekend. So, so explain what this is about. And there'll be time for the other one too. I think we're going to have a pretty short show today because Gail had really short poems and then... Uh, I don't see a whole lot of people on the open lines. We definitely have time to just share, share whatever you want. Good. Um, well, good. Good. I, pr- I appreciate the information. Um, yeah, so this one, you know, motivated again by the Texas uh, abortion, um, sort of uh, echoing the Fugitive Slave Act, really, with bounties, you know, enforced by, by uh, people. And, uh, you know, it's very... Uh, difficult and fraught for a guy to write a, a poem about this, but it really what unfolded for me was my mother and her activism, and mm-hmm. you know the, this very sort of society woman who you know got down in the streets to protect others' right to choose. So yeah. that's basically this one. Okay, well, why don't you go ahead? I have it up for everybody. Sure. Uh, an incomplete, partially factual portrait of my mother that is entirely true. This is the story of my mother who died with a pen falling from her hand, a check on her desk paid to the order of those who would put women in charge of their own choosing. This is the story of my mother who chose to birth me, thought she might not, knew her money could buy a very quiet procedure, and I'd have been fine with whatever she chose. And what she chose was to place newborn me in the arms of hired help so she could nail protest signs to staffs, hold them high as she rallied with whoever would link arms with her, whoever would join her to fend off heckling men and their spittling mouths, men who raged at women as they walked from bus stop to clinic, from parking lot to doctor's door. My mom wrapped her arms around those sisters was hit with dribbles of shouters spit, came home each night to a maid-cooked meal, read Saul Bellow under a shaded lamp, poured over the local affiliates' finances, watched the local news at 11, went out the next morning, picketed the state house, raised her voice so the hired help, too, could have a choice. If she were alive today, my mom would march her hundred-year-old self to Texas, hold the hand of every woman and girl, choosing to do what mom didn't do back in 53. 
She'd whisper mother love into fearful girls' ears and say the proper lady's version of fuck you to any prissy busybody who'd sue her. This is the story of my mother, and I wonder uh, what she would, uh, what would she, would she think she made the right choice to give birth to a man who sits on his hands at a time like this? Yeah, great poem. It makes me really want to meet your mother. Um, an incomplete, partially factual portrait of my mother that is entirely true. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Richard. Uh, and you said there there is time for another? Yeah, or, yeah go ahead with the other one, too. Yeah. So I have The Wolf Hunt, which was from a couple of weeks ago, and it's sort of I'm attempting a little more formal stuff occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and this the basic story was uh, in Wisconsin, they were wrangling over how many wolves they could hunt and the reintroduction of wolves into the environment and and who who is for it and who is against it yeah. uh, you know hunting and taking them out so that's the sort of context yeah yeah um so this is the wolf hunt he hears the rain before the rain hears the rain the patter on distant leaves rouses the wolf the collie cocks his head hears baying from the hills paws the floor, noses the door, dreams he hunts with the wolves. A sheep bleat reaches the rancher's ears, then another cut off. The old man counts his coins, knows he can't abide more wolves. Blood soaks the ground. The air is sodded with wet wool and musk. The alpha circles. He snouts the still warm gut. Wolves down the bowels. Bears his teeth, drips liverous bile from his tongue. The betas snap their jaws, wait their turn at the wolf feast. The Ojibwe word for corn is mandamin, which means wonder. White tails browse knee-high stalks, dart to the woods, wary of the wolf. My hunter buddy shoulders his two twenty-three, sights the scope, and sees one more trophy mounted on his wall, the stuffed corpse of a wolf. Ecologists from downstate count predator and prey, survey the flora, speak up in meetings, defend the wolf. Maingan means wolf, means the one to show us the way. Ojibwe, walk with the wolf, know the wolf, do not fear the wolf, are the wolf. I I am the hunter, the corn grower, the rancher, the ecologists. I do not know the wolf. Oh, I wish I was the kind of man who hungers to howl with the pack, who knows he has shown the way and walks with the wolf. I am not. Mm. Thanks for sharing that, Richard. Do you know Do you know anything about the, the wolf situation just broadly in the country? Because I... I, I was thinking, I don't really know much about it. Like, how many wolves are in the United States? And like, in what states are they? Do you know anything about that? Well, I, you know, I, of course, read read up on Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and I don't remember the numbers. But it, it you know, it was reintroduced, and it's re- reached a threshold where they think the wolf community is sustainable. And there's lots of, but not abundant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I do know in areas where they've reintroduced wolves that, Deer populations are reduced, and you know streams start running more, you know, yeah. uh, you know more uh, not running in their banks rather than running out of their banks because the deer strip the um, the banks. 
And uh, but I don't know. I, I do know that it's a sustainable number mm-hmm. and some ranchers. And the other thing is, is they don't cause a lot of damage, mm-hmm. but they cause a lot of damage every place that they do damage. Yeah. So they'll take out 30 sheep on one farm, mm-hmm. but all the sheep farms in Wisconsin suffer more losses from dogs, from domestic dogs. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's interesting. And then I, I wonder too, like, do, do wolves attack humans very often? Is there a danger to the population? Because here where we are, people talk about reintroducing wolves, which in my opinion, I can, I, it's fine. But then they also re- talk about reintroducing brown bears. And I do not want to reintroduce no, a California no. brown no. bear. I, I, I am, I'm not, I'm not a promoter of enough. Yeah. I'm, I'm not pure enough to want brown bears. <laughs> yeah. But the wolves evidently, you know, the, you know, and the, the more I read about the Ojibwe, that this, this was, this is not sort of hyperbole that they walk with wolves and they have some sense of, of kinship with the wolves. Mm-hmm. This is very much, um, not viewing the wolves as threats. Yeah, yeah. Well, very interesting. Both both good poems. Thanks for sharing both, Richard. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Tim. Good to see you. Yep, good night. Okay, so it was Richard Westheimer with The Wolf Hunt and then uh, the poem about, about his mother. And um, let us see. Um, I think we're going to do Angela Gartner next because she was the first person to ask. And then we do, let's see. Um, yeah, we have have a poem from Colette, too. So I'll read the poem from Colette after Angela. Let's see. Okay, let's call up Angela and see what she's got. Tim? Hey, Angela, how you doing? Good. Oh, let me turn you off here. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> can you see me? Okay. I can, yeah. Good to see you today. Oh, okay. So, so what is it that you wanted to share? Oh, okay. So I have a poem um, for Poets Respond. Mm-hmm. And I have a prompt poem, but it's kind of funny. I'll tell you that about that. <laughs> okay. But um, so Carolyn Shoemaker um, is basically, um, she passed away at 92. It's from a New York Times article. Mm-hmm. And she was basically um hunting like so basically her and her husband gene her gene was a planetary geologist and after like her kids went you know left for college and she was she was just kind of a homemaker she was a teacher but then you know she just pretty much became a homemaker her husband kind of she wanted something compelling to do like at Mm -hmm. the age 50 and she's like i really want something to do so he gave her a choice between um, something with geology and looking through um, the telescope to find comets and asteroids. And she chose that and became like one of the like, like world renowned at this, um, even a comet um, named after her and, um, and a researcher with her. But it all kind of just started kind of, you know, um, with her husband, but she really grew to like really love it. And even after his death, which she died, it was terrible. Like they were in a head on collision in Australia, um, looking at like these craters and, um, 
and he died. Um, I think it was like in the in the nineties, and then you know she carried on this work, their work. So it is kind of a love story, but I kind of just wrote it about her because she at first she like was like, oh my gosh, I can't stay up all night, and you know, mm-hmm. it, but it turned into like this thing that she, and I mean, who would have thought like a cool like second career is to look to the skies and and you know look for you know comets and asteroids because i think i don't know like even since i was little you know maybe because all the movies you see and stuff but you know you think oh you know and obviously the dinosaurs too what <laughs> they say what happened the dinosaurs you know she was one of the people kind of looking up and and making sure that you know seeing all these things that these big rocks that could be hurtling towards us. So, yeah, it's fascinating. There was one of those. I mean, the reason why I love sharing these poets respond poems, you know, on an open mic is that there's so many fascinating poems and stories that come in every week. I get to learn from, and this was one of them. I didn't know. I knew, you know, I heard of Schumacher Levy, the the comet, um, but I never knew any of the backstory about the um, Carolyn who found it. And so this was fascinating to read, um, and it was a cool poem too. Uh, do you want to go ahead and read it? I'll put it up. Yeah. Filling time with hunting comets and asteroids for Caroline. The birds are chirping morning songs and you are going to bed. The kids are gone. You needed a hobby. A retired teacher climbed to the top of a mountain to look up in the black and gray shades of the night, searching for floating rocks headed towards planets in a rage to save us from a wild universe. Yeah, great little poem and, and a great story. People should definitely look up the uh, the article and you know and the a bio of um, Carolyn Schumacher. It's just really really fascinating. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that you know I submitted to Poets Respond, but I'm really just happy that I got to write a poem about it and to learn more about her. And I think it is true. Like when I look up to this, you know, because I love looking to the stars. I'm always like. Every night we go on our, you know, dog walk and I'm looking up and point out the constellations to my husband who've heard it a million times. But it's like one of my favorite things to do. And, you know, you see the planes and you and you just wonder if you're going to see something, you know, magical. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we're, we lose so much, too, with the light pollution, which. Um, yeah, that, I know. Some, sometimes <laughs> it's only like only grayish white <laughs> yeah. you don't get to see that you're like looking for the stars and they're not there but um, okay and then you had another poem too did you did you want to share that or not yeah so okay this is funny so um i i've been having a crazy month myself because i've been working on the poet um the postcard poetry fest oh that's right yeah so I haven't been doing many prompts and I mean, this was a quick poem too. So it'd probably be not as good, but I'm like, how, what can I do? Like, but I was in this trivia thing and like one of the answers I said kind of funny was kind of Jack the Ripper and October's coming up and, you know, like it's the time for me to start thinking about like, you know, I guess October with being Halloween and everything. And, and I don't know, like Jack Ripper falls in that kind of category, like the crazy, the weirdness of, of, um, October for some reason, but, um, but I also, I was thinking like as a reporter, you know, I was just thinking kind of the reporter's mindset, like, you know, not, not many reporters, you know, you like, for an example, like when I was a reporter, like there was a murder that happened that, you know, they were like, 
you know, I, I was sent out to kind of go to the scene, but I didn't really see anything, which was good. But like in the back in the 1800s, you know, unfortunately, I think probably reporters saw more than they wanted to see, you know, um, mm-hmm. and these kind of things. So that's kind of what I was thinking about, like, you know, kind of being a reporter in the 1800s when uh, Jack the Ripper was going on. And, you know, it's it's something like very small and kind of, you know, it's just something that came to mind quickly. I, it's probably not well written, but we'll just give it a whirl. Well, so. I'm looking forward to hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it, it, if you scroll down, like, because I put on the same page for you. Yeah, I see it. I have it here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Newspaper reporter's nightmare. The black ink spot widened on my column. A ghastly scene. A girl's bloody legs opened. Her organs carefully plucked from her womb. She was the unfortunate, lost in the city shadows. I was among, among the men who hurried into the pub's alley to vomit the contents of my breakfast. Oh, wow. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> that that actually kind of, it's a great, I'm glad you, that you shared that poem, though, because I wanted to remind her, let everybody know, we are on, um, for Halloween, um, Halloween's on a Sunday, but we're not going to do a Sunday show. Uh, but the night before, we're going to do it on Saturday. And I want to have a creepy Halloween show. And Ooh. so we have a poet, um, um, Ernest Gilbert, who has a book called Caligulan, which is a book of all of like creepy Halloween type poems, um, like, you know, scary mythology and things like that. And then I want the open lines to be creepy poems, too. So we can have a whole creepy poem, scary Halloween night, the night before Halloween to kick it off. So um, if anybody, you know, if you have, uh, you have like a month and a half or something or almost two months to get your poems ready. So I wanted to remind people of that. Uh, that's a great reminder. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Ooh. Angela. Did I lose you? Oh, I think I froze. Um, but you, uh, you can hear me, right? Hmm. Well, I think maybe, uh, maybe we lost Angela, but yeah, I don't know what happened there. But, um, but yeah, I'm still here, hopefully. So, so yeah, so Caligulan uh, with Ernest Hilbert is going to be that, that uh, Saturday, Saturday, uh, October 30th, we're going to have a Halloween show. So um, get, get some creepy poems. You have a month in it or, or two to uh, write a creepy poem. Okay, next up, okay, we have a bunch of people who, um, who are new and trying to call in here. We have a two, three, two, five, three number. Uh, Patrick Donahue. Um, I just I just waved back to Patrick O'Donohue. Oh, that might be a Colette, actually. Um, actually, let me call up that that person right now and see if that is Colette, because it's Colette O'Donohue over here. Um, see if we can get connected. Because I was going to read that poem next. Let's see if it doesn't work. I'll I'll read it. Hmm. It says uh. Says Patrick, who I think is Colette, um, isn't online. So, so I'll try again in a little bit because I want to. If we can get you on, I want to make sure we get you actually on. Let's um, let's see. I'm double checking to make sure the stream is working still. Okay, it is. Yes, I'm still here. Um, yeah, thank you. Okay, so um, instead, let's go to Carla Schwartz. Then we'll go Julian. Um. Now we'll do Carla Schwartz, then Julian Matthews, and then we'll do this 253 number. The 253 number, um, who just called, I haven't reminded everybody, but there is a delay. So when I call you, you'll be live on the air, but it'll be like in the future. So hang up or, or mute your stream and just talk to me over the phone when I call you, or else it'll be confusing. And you have to have your poem with you 
Also, because that delay, you won't be able to read it on the screen either. So have the poem ready uh, when I call you. And I'll call you after we talk to um, Carla and Julian, so maybe about 10 minutes or so. But let's call up Carla first. Hey. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. How are you doing today, Carla? I'm doing very well. Doing very well. Um, back on the lake. Happy to be here. Oh, good. How did how did you you know handle the the all the rain and stuff that was going your way? Um, it worked out okay. The first one was Henri, and then the next one was uh, Ida, right? Uh-huh. And Ida Ida didn't do too much for us. Uh, too many bad things, which was good. Uh, but for us. But uh, Henri um, gave us a lot of wind mm-hmm. and um, rain, but no, you know, we we didn't uh, lose power and we didn't lose any boats or anything, so it was good. It well, was that's great to hear. Relatively, yeah, yeah, yeah. relatively good. So, so yeah. what do you uh, what do you want to share tonight? Okay, so um, yeah, I had thought about writing something that starts a hundred years ago, but I really couldn't. But I have a poem that was recently published in Ibbotson Street, so it's called. Uh, Marlboro, summer 1968. Great. I'll put it up and, on the screen. Yeah. Okay. And, and, okay, and do you want to say anything about it to start with or, or just jump um, in? Well, it, it has a focus on my great aunt who actually did start her life more than 100 years ago. Uh, but that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> uh, and it takes place in Marlboro, Vermont, actually. And um, it has a epigraph from the Cherry Orchard by Anton Chekhov, and that goes, life has gone by as if I never lived. Hmm. One of the Casal summers, a sizzling cicada year, my mother started a pop-up art gallery in an old barn in Marlboro, before the internet, before the gas crisis, back when long distance calling cost something. She put it together rented an old farmhouse for us, a long white attitude thing with a wrap around porch and shared the rental of the barn down the road with a summer theater company. The gallery centerpiece was a bronze bust of Casal, but most of the rest of the art belonged to my mother. One summer, Once summer began, we piled into the new Plymouth station wagon, stuffed to the roof with paintings. For a few weeks before camp started, we'd hang around the gallery during play rehearsals, the importance of being earnest, and soon mouth the lines along with the actors until we knew all the words, the pauses, and the laugh spots without really understanding the meaning. I hated the sleepaway camp my mother sent us to that summer. I liked the crafts, but not the campers. I molded clay into elephants and embroidered a turtle onto green felt, stuffed it with cotton, and stitched it closed. Soon, I acquired a fever so fierce my mother had to come and take me home early. Two days in Vermont and the fever broke. I ran through the overgrown grass and returned to the barn, the mouthing, the pauses, first the misanthrope, then the cherry orchard. The next week, a new relative, my mother's Tante Margaret, visited us from Peru, where she ended up 
1939, after her ship was permitted to land. She brought us ponchos and woven bags made from llama wool. Proudly, she told me that when she was young, she and Grandma had servants to cook meals and others to unroll their stockings at night. I didn't wear stockings yet, didn't understand that when you flee for your life, those might be the things you miss. Oh, great poem. I love that uh, that turn at the ending. That was uh, Marlboro Summer, 1968. And, um, and that was from, uh, it was published in, you can see it there, Ibbotson Street, uh, this summer's issue. Can you explain a little bit about about that magazine? What do you know about it? Um, I know that it's okay. based in the Northeast, That's or, you know, the New yes. England. Somerville, Somerville, Massachusetts. I'm going to see if I can find my copy. Yeah, here it is. So it's based, this was number 49, the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's they, they actually do, they make a beautiful cover, which I can't share with you right now. But um, uh, So they don't have a big online presence, although mm-hmm. they do have a website. Uh, they publish twice a year. And on their cover today, it looks like they have a photograph of the Eiffel Tower. And then it, it says um, uh, Marge Piercy, Jennifer Barber, Mary Butchester, Bodwell, Ted Kuzer, and Keith Tornheim, and more on the front. So it's like a bunch of, you know, people that are published in there. And they're out of Somerville. And, um, you know, it's uh, sometimes they put two poems on a page, so they kind of squeeze things in. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, uh, they, there are some very good poems in there, and I, I enjoy submitting there and... Um, and, and um, having a poem published there every once in a while. Yeah, very cool. Well, I'm so glad you could share that uh, that poem and also the press. It's always really fun to, to share other presses on the show. It's, so it's nice to show off those. Thanks, Carla. Oh, thank you so much, Tim, for everything. Bye-bye. Yeah. Good night. That was Carla Schwartz. Um, let's see. Okay, so we will... Oh, maybe there are... Uh, okay. So like I said, we're going to call up Julian Matthews next, then we'll try these first-time callers. So be ready, your you first-time callers. We have um, two O'Donohues sometimes, how, which I think might be the same person. Unless I mean, the odds of there being two O'Donohues listening right now are pretty low, I think. So I think it's probably the same person. Um, but we'll do that, and we'll do the 253 number after Julian Matthews. So be ready. Let's call up Julian right now. Hey, Julian. How are you doing today? Hi. See, I hear you, but I don't have any uh, video yet if you want to come in. Okay. Here you go, I think. There you are. Good to see you. So so how are things going there today? Okay. Um, And and what was it that you wanted to share? Uh, A poet's response. Okay, let me... uh... Uh, I wrote about... uh, It's called Offset Patakron Jumping Man. Um, Hang on a second. Let me try to find it. Ah, okay. I see it now. Um, oh, the, the whole... <laughs> the fact that it, you submitted in August was confusing me. I forget that, like, August was only a couple days away, or, or days before. Um, okay, so so what, explain about... This was a good poem. Explain uh, what this was about. So we've had a change of government. Uh, two parties uh, trying to control the government, and uh, the party that we kicked out three years ago has taken control of the government and it's uh, graph tainted 
So we have a new prime minister. Mm-hmm. So this uh, poem is about the, the change that happened, but uh, writing according to a, a sport that's uh, popular here called Sepak Takro. Yeah, that was interesting so to read about too. Another thing that I didn't know anything about, and I should say that, that you're in Malaysia um, for people who don't know, yeah. you know, aren't regular watchers and don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, so this is the, the new prime minister of Malaysia. Yeah. Uh, so go ahead whenever you're, you're ready. Yeah, I just, uh, there are two words here that are in Malay. One is Sepatakro, which is uh, kind of like a volleyball, but usually mainly using feet. And another word is kaki ayam, which literally means uh, chicken feet, but actually uh, implies uh, bare feet. Mm-hmm. So this is called of Sepatakro and Jumping Men. Once in the heat of the East Coast, in a field where the grass had turned brown, I came upon a group of men, some in rolled up pants, some in sarongs hitched up to their thighs and knotted in between their legs. They were barefooted, slippers appeared hastily removed and flung in a pile. Bicycles were parked haphazardly nearby, as if the game began spontaneously. They were grown men, not children or teenagers arranged in a circle, kicking and keeping a ball in the air. I knew this as Sepat Takro, usually played in a court with a net, three players on either side. But this was like a hacky sack circle, only much larger and wider than usual, and the Takro was an odd size, appeared smaller, harder to kick accurately. I recall the dust of the mud-dried field kicking up in the midday sun, the sound of feet cracking against Takro, the shouts of mirth and cajoling as a loose ball was rescued before it hit the ground. Their acrobatics were a marvel to watch. I came closer when suddenly the ball came flying in my direction. I reached out and caught it. It was warm as if it had a heartbeat, a globe of tightly wound rattan with holes big enough to fit tiny fingers, like hands in a cookie jar. I flung it up high, clumsily, but not close enough. One of the older men rushed out to greet it, his back to the men, and in a swift jumping move, worthy of a World Cup player, kicked it overhead, into the circle, and the game resumed in a beat, like a practice dance with shouts of, yay. Some raised their hands in gestures, of acknowledgement for my small contribution. And I, a city boy, a stranger, the other, now standing with folded arms, was in awe, admiration, and over the decades since, in bewilderment of this ball-juggling, jumping, kaki ayam men, as if I could ever be a part of them as if I should ever learn the rules of the game, as if I would ever soil my feet to keep their precious takro in the air. Yeah, <clears throat> that was a really good poem, really interesting. Um, can, can you explain a little bit about that sport? Because, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not familiar to me, and, and I found it interesting looking up about it. So it's a little like a volleyball. It has a net and three players on the other side. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and the ball is uh, made of rattan usually, um, and uh, they kick the ball across each other and score points. But they only mainly use their feet. Mm-hmm. They can also use their head and their shoulders, but not their hands. Yeah. So it's very acrobatic. Uh, even from from the the, the service itself, the, it's a very acrobatic game, and it's uh, a little bit like volleyball and a little bit like uh, badminton. Yeah, like soccer, volleyball, or something. It's uh, I, I watched a video and it was impressive. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. not good at, good at kicking it. I'm not a soccer type, so um, yeah, I was very impressed. Uh, but great metaphor too for the situation there. Thanks so much for yeah. sharing that, Julian. Thank you so much, Tim. Yep. Have a good night. Uh, Julian Matthews with uh, of Sepak Tekra and Jumping Men. Um, okay, so like I said, we're gonna call up. Let's try. Um, let's try Colette O'Donohue. See if we can get a connection this time. Ah, here we go. Hey, Colette. Um, I hear you. If you want to come in on video, you got to click the camera button. Uh, but otherwise, you're on. Okay, it's um, it's a uh, Pada, not Colette. Oh, okay. Well, your, your email said that, so. Uh... Colette is Mrs. Pada. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Colette and Pada. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, oop, you just lost video again. I don't know if you want to come back or not. No. But but it's fine with just audio too, if you want. There you come. Okay, and so you are in Ireland. I'm I'm in Ireland in uh, County County Wicklow. And, and how are things going there? I saw I think that um, with the COVID situation that Ireland's doing pretty well with the vaccinations all of a sudden, and everything's going to open up soon. Is that is that true? Does it feel good there? Yes, every, every, everything's good with the jabs and everything. Yeah, well, I'm very glad you could join us. It's pretty late there too. Um, what what did you want to share? Hello. Yeah. I, I, oh, sorry. I, I'm hearing everything twice. Oh yeah, turn off the stream because you're the, where you're watching it on YouTube or whatever it is. Uh, turn that off, or at least mute it so that we just have the phone call. Okay. Because otherwise, it, they're like thirty seconds apart, so it gets confusing. Is it good now? Oh. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Timothy. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem at all. It's like an old time radio show, so. Yeah. Um, um, so, so what did you want to share? Take a walk on the wild side is the poem you sent, and um, you mentioned it was in the Irish Times, I think. It was. Um, will, I, will I read it for you now? Yeah, go ahead. Do you want to say anything to introduce it, or do you want to just jump right in? Yeah, it's. Um, it yeah. was. Yeah, just go ahead. Uh, take a walk on the wild side. Dogs like time and tide. Wait for no man or woman or virus. But this dog was waiting for me and I couldn't say no. So check glasses, willows, poo bags, collar. Lead away, Macduff. Late, thank God, the misanthropist's delight. We saw a trailer out to sea, lights as beguiling, as lonesome as a funeral song. We heard and vaguely saw a swan, followed by another swan flying barely able to know if that raw asthmatic sound was from beak or wing. A robin, more trusting than brave, sang us the sweetest song, even song. Another bird, even more startled than us, with his helicopter wings, took fright, took flight, 
Far above us all, a jet plane, warm-framed in the twilight, its jet trail rendered sweet by the fading sunlight, red and as beautiful as a comet's tail. Was it merely this, merely, or every single thing gone before, or the horror of now that sank me to my knees? Uh, excellent poem. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that. It was Take a Walk on the Wild Side and Peter O'Donohue. <laughs> Um, and it mentions you're um, the co-editor of PB Magazine and um, have um, two books of poetry out, The Death of Poetry from PB Press and uh, Jewel from Salmon Poetry um, 2012. Um, do, do you uh, you were the person who had the, the comment about um, class in Ireland. Um, and then and I noticed your book here is The Death of Poetry. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, what you were getting at with that comment and and if, if that has anything to do with the death of poetry. Yes, uh, my book, The Death of Poetry, is completely about class, the way um, working class voices are more or less obscured in Ireland. I don't know what it's like in America, but um, uh, poetry in Ireland is a definitely a middle class sport. And um, if you look at any mainstream magazine or any competition winners they're all of an ilk Mm -hmm. they all have these little touch words and touch points and anchors that that dictate that they are of a certain ilk and it's all very cozy and very comfortable and they don't really want any outsiders any people with vernacular language or other reference other reference points to join in, mm-hmm. and and, and uh, do you do you try to to you know reverse that with PB Press? Definitely, where with that was the whole premise of PB Press was to create a platform that was open to everybody. We we read blind, mm-hmm. and it's amazing when you read blind what a cross section of the public you get. Like we've always had gender balance. We we encompass all because at the end of the day anybody can write a poem um it's it's the quality of the poetry not the quality of the person we choose poems not people mm-hmm. and uh, we we really have i think um really leveled the playing field but but uh, perversely we've been really eschewed by the poetry establishment mm-hmm. because we've done this we also um, acknowledge um, receipt of poems within 48 hours and we give a, a decision within seven days, hmm. which is um, unprecedented here. I yeah. don't know what it's like in America, well, but well, here you, <laughs> you can wait months for a reply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I was going to say that, that you seem very similar to Rattle over there until you got to the, oh, res- very good, yes. until you got to the response time, which um, we cannot keep up with that. <laughs> we used to. We used to be really quick, but um, yeah. we've sort of lost that ability gradually <laughs> over the years. Um, so it well, is a few you months. You probably get a mo- lot more submissions <laughs> than we do. Yeah, yeah, but it is interesting, though, because we're... Um, you know, and I'm sorry you can't see my picture. I'm trying to turn my camera back on. It froze. But um, anyway, yeah, Rattle is, is has very much the same mindset and, and the same, um, I don't know, like way that it's not really within the mainstream of poetry, which is always true too. Like we have, um, yeah. 
like the second most number of subscribers and like the most web traffic, like people actually reading it. But uh, as far as like all the awesome. awards and things go, we never win any. And, and, you know, occasionally we're in, you know, I think we're ranked like, you know, 25th of the, of the magazines that get in the best American poetry and things like that. But, um, but yeah. we have, you know, among the most readers. So we're always really happy with that. And look, sounds like uh, you're doing a similar thing over there in Ireland, which is great to hear. Well, we're, we're trying to, you know, we're surviving against the odds, but mm-hmm. um, kind of not being included is grist to our mill and keeps us going. Maybe if we had been incorporated into the mainstream, we'd have given up. Yeah, yeah. It's almost because they, they won't let us that we keep <laughs> going. It's it's great in a way. And funnily enough, uh, Rattle, um, I only heard of through, uh, you obviously know Billy Collins. Mm-hmm, yeah. He, he said you're your, he, he, you are his favorite magazine. Oh, did he? Oh, that's always cool to oh, hear. Oh, God, he did, yeah. He's always gone on about Rattle. <laughs> and I thought, well, if Billy Collins likes Rattle, they must be pretty good. <laughs> well, I should I should have him on the Rattlecast. I, I keep meaning to ask, but I feel like, um, you know, he's so big and he has his own thing that, that I don't know if he'd want to, but maybe maybe I should ask him. Um, I think he would, because yeah. honestly, I don't know if you, uh, like I follow, follow Billy Collins on uh, Facebook and he does mm-hmm. regular kind of readings. Yeah, I watch those regularly. Always I really enjoy him. Rattle. Yeah. Always saying, I get Rattle. I subscribe to Rattle. Rattle is my favorite magazine. So I'm sure he'd be delighted because he, yeah. he seemed to be pretty generous like that. He's one of the few mm-hmm. that is, is, is generous, you know, that has made it, but is still kind of off the people a bit, you know? Yeah, he definitely is, which is why he has that weekly uh, poetry show that he does, which which I just yes. love to watch too. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for, for joining and calling in and sharing that. And everybody will have to check out PB Magazine in Ireland um, that, you, that Peter O'Donohue and, and his wife Colette run. Uh, thanks so much yeah. for joining us, Peter. We're the best. Yeah, take care. <laughs> Thank you. Yep, Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, Peter O'Donohue. Yeah, so I'll read. Um, so this is Carlton Johnson's poem. Did he include a, um explanation? Open mic submission for 9-5. Let's see. Oh, here it is. The poem is known as a terminal poem in which you take a well-known poem and then write your own poem, but keep the same end words of each line. Uh, This poem is based on Morning Swim by Maxine Cuman. And uh, so here we go. This is Morning Swim, Carlton Johnson. And uh, he called it a terminal poem, which is something I hadn't heard of before. So this will be interesting. And um, um, let's see the same end words of each line. So this, is, this has the same end words as um, Maxine Cuman's poem, Morning Swim. Here we go. Into my universe, the birds do come. They tweed and chirp where from. They have no need to be nude. Feathers flutter with solitude. The sky is ceiling, the ground, the floor. The home is balanced on a breath of air. With sandals, towel, shorts of blue cloth, I amble to my pool. The waters of growth. I set the towel on wooden pegs. I enter this cool water, calms my legs. Divider and divided, I take a a breath of clear blue sky. With commanding strokes, I tame the waves that call forth my name like a fish out of water. I swim, not as graceful as the notes of a hymn, and yet as the birds above do chirp, I beat the measure of my swim with steadfast feet. With each and every stroke I swam out, the hymn forms bubbles in my mouth. In this space I was weightless as I fell, through the transoms of this watery well, 
And there I did float in this tiny sea, as I let loose the grace that swam with me. Into my empty head, um, into my empty head there came, come a cotton beach, a dock where from, oh wait, no, I think this is a notes to, to the earlier draft. So um, yeah, that was Carlton Johnson with um, Morning Swim. And I do believe it ended there with, um, I let loose the grace that swam with me. Really, really nice poem there, Carlton. It makes me want to go back, and everybody should go and look at that Maxine Cuman poem, Morning Swim. Um, maybe, uh, maybe I could read that. Let's see. Maxine Cuman, Morning Swim. If I can find a version online, I'll, I'll share it. Um, okay, here we go. Yeah, because it's short. I was thinking it was a three-pager, so I uh, didn't have time, but we definitely... We can share this. This is Morning Swim by Maxine Cuman. So we can compare the two now. Um, here you go. This is the original, and, and Carl, Carlton's was an N-terminal poem. Morning Swim. And this is from uh, courtesy of uh, LOC.gov programs. The, the Library of Congress, that is. Uh, Morning Swim. Into my empty head there come a cotton beach, a dock wherefrom I set out, oily and nude through mist in chilly solitude. There was no line, no roof, nor floor to tell the water from the air. Night fog, thick as terry cloth, closed me in its fuzzy growth. I hung my bath robe on two pegs. I took the lake between my legs. Invaded and invader, I went over hand in that flat sky. Fish twitched beneath me, quick and tame. In their green zone they sang my name. And in the rhythm of the swim, I hummed a two-four time slow hymn. I hummed abide with me. The beat rose in the fine thrash of my feet, rose in the bubbles I put out slantwise, trailing through my mouth. My bones drank water. I f- water fell through all my doors. I was the well that fed the lake that met me, my sea, in which I sang Abide With Me. And that is Maxine Cuman's poem. So that was the inspiration for Carlton's poem, both entitled Morning Swim Carlton was an N-terminal, an interesting form. And for more on Maxine Cuman, we interviewed her in round number 20, which is still available uh, for purchase if anybody's interested. Um, I think it was Maxine Cuman and Colette Inez in that issue. Okay, let's see. So so we, we're out of callers here, but we did have some people who wanted me to read stuff. Um, so Lisa Gibson asked if I would read this. This is Heart of Flame. We have a few poems I'm going to read um, from... Actually, the inbox is pretty full with um, people, but I'm going to pick a few at least and, and read a few. Heart of Flame, this is Lisa Gibson. Here we go. And she asked, uh, all I have to do is ask if you'd like me to read a poem, and I can read, you know, if we have a little bit of time, I'll read any poems that you'd like me to read for you to join them uh, into the Rattlecast broadcast. This is Lisa Gibson with Heart of Flame. The sky shifted from azure to cobalt while we laid in the embers of me. You warmed yourself by the light preening in the ashes of my love. Little regard to the fire consuming me, I sweep the soot from the rooms of my heart. As you pontificate about your dreams, they are little origami birds whose wings are signed, folding in upon themselves over and over. We're all living among burnt landscapes. I can be who you want me to be, continually setting myself aflame to give you light to bask in. I don't want your souvenirs of love, Tiny paper birds that will never know flight. A very interesting metaphor that was Heart of Flame by Lisa Gibson. Um, I love the line about the um, the preening in the ashes of my love. Very interesting. Good poem. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Lisa. 
And um, let's see who else wanted me to share. Um, Nate Jacobs has this poem. Um, this is his prom poem. So um, here we go. I, I think I'm going I'm to read a bunch of these. I'm kind of having fun. I'm not in a super rush. I, I don't want to get back to reading submissions. Not that I don't love reading submissions, but I, I like the break. So um, oops, this is uh, a caveman awakens. Let me see if I can expand it a little bit. Okay. A caveman. So he says, I took my poem way back beyond a mere hundred years to a caveman in love, suddenly loquacious and capable of a sonnet. So that's very interesting. That was, this was like on the prompt, which was um, a poem set back in history. A caveman awakens to being the only one fully possessed of language. Consider this, my lonely verbal state, descended like a million inky bats from stars above or from the deep. Perhaps the words seeped up. How to communicate with fellow beings who do not demonstrate grasp of sound beyond the uggs and acts we've spoken since we first escaped the slag. This gift of tongues alone I navigate. But oh, the words I'd loose on my sweet gook. Were she to understand them, she would find her knees made of weak, her primate ears unstuck, her Stone Age mind drawn to the heavens high. But I alone am cursed with words, such luck, so little use of sweetness and for the for light. That's <laughs> great. It's hard not to laugh. The the idea of um the only man it, it's almost like a Twilight Zone episode. The only man, you know, the only caveman who can speak it would be a sort of weird kind of how like the guy who loved reading so much but then he broke his reading glasses. Um let's see. So here um, let me do Vicky Miko's poem real quick. This is, um, and as always, Vicky has some visuals to go with it. This is the Mustang Tarot card. And um, I'll put that on the screen here. This is the Mustang Tarot card. And it's a picture of a Mustang here. Um, very interesting as always. Um, maybe I'll read the, to make sure I get the words right. I'll read the actual text. Your mane to tail, a fierce internal stream, never cowering from a headwind, never withering when you tell yourself to listen. And then there's a beautiful picture of the uh, the Mustang running through the nighttime. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that, Vicky. It's always a pleasure to share your poems. And um, Ted Guevara. Um, let's see. So Ted says, I go back to ancient Greece when people depend on God, depended on gods and goddesses to aid them on their daily grind. Helping mothers give birth was always a cautious task. Then, as it is now, all the complications, such as breach, remain the same. My poem predates the Caesarean section, which came not much later, um, 715 BC. That, wow, really interesting, in that civilization. It was then a practice to avoid the taboo of burying a woman with a child. My poem here hopefully sheds light on how buoyant we are to always crave for air. That's very, I never heard that. That's really interesting. So here's Ted Guevara's poem, First Hospital on Earth. First Hospital on Earth. Among shadowy trees nestled the Greek temple. Its dedication was to bear and sustain life. And all else, towels, hot water, air, are midwife to assist the newborn, not necessarily divine or royalty. In fact, he was a farmer's son. The mother, due was 18 days late. May they be humbled, but wanting the best of prenatal care in 858 BC. 
Just the coolness of the room made the farmer happy. He thought no sweat would come profusely down the wife's body, and it would be blessed and touched by Artemis. He and the mortal alms seen in the room were the best of health health insurance. But no, all of temple became anguish upon seeing feet of the infant coming out first. Aphrodite nearly fainted. She turned to the god of birth, Artemis, and asked what procedure can be taken for the baby to swig its first air. Artemis looked at the farmer and said, Time has not bestowed such measure upon us. Therefore you must choose your wife or the gamble of your son's breath to life. The farmer rose in glee, proclaiming he has a son. Then he jumped to his wife's crest and began easing the boy, hand over hand, wiggling limb after limb, like what the farmer would do if he was at home. Wow, that was an interesting poem. Um, Thanks for sharing that, Ted. Ted Guevara with... um, First hospital on earth. I'm a little frightening there. Um, I gotta read more about that. I, d- I never knew that. Okay. Um, I think. Let's. I think we're gonna have to call it a night this time. It's getting pretty late. Um, okay. So um, I'm gonna try to find the psyku really quick. Um, so there was some interesting discussion about the psyku because I posted it on my Facebook page. And it was this article um, from the University of Kent. And uh, here we go. This is the, the article that inspired my little psyche this week. Research finally reveals ancient universal equation for the shape of an egg. And so, um, so an egg is, you know, it's, a, it's um, an ellipsoid, ellipsoid shape and not a perfect ellipse. It's... it's um, asymmetric on one side and this has to do with making sure the egg doesn't roll out of the nest and so if you roll an egg across the counter it'll turn around in a circle and end up pretty much where it came and and the more of a asymmetry in the egg shape the uh the smaller the circle it will roll in so that's one of uh, several factors and apparently there's some more like um birds that are um birds that are better flyers and more streamlined aerodynamically um tend to have thinner more elliptical eggs to squeeze them into their organs more as they're developing inside the bird um and so there are other things like that and it's been a an interesting mystery for science for a long time how this whole um, bird thing comes together there's a lot of evolutionary biology going on and these researchers at kent school of biosciences um found the equation or they developed the equation for this egg and how an egg shape is made and so they have i'll put the equations down here in the article Pretty simple, y equals plus or minus b over the square root of l squared minus 4x squared over l squared plus 8wx plus 4w squared times p to the x, whatever that means. And um, <laughs> that is the uh, formula that governs the shape of an egg. And uh, for the first time, they're able to fit every different type of egg into one formula, which has implications for a whole bunch of things. Um, including aerodynamics and, um, you know, submarines and farming and all sorts of things. So um, that was just an interesting article that caught my eye because eggs are always an interesting example of evolution. And so my psyku for this week was um, right here. A robin's egg rolling around the shape of perfection. A robin's egg rolling around the shape of perfection. And that is your psyku for today to remind everybody that there's all sorts of things you can write poems about. 
And for next week, the prompt is going to be write a poem that contains an anagram. An anagram is created by rearranging the letters of a certain word or phrase to make another word or phrase. For example, an anagram of anagram is nagaram. Bonus points if the title of your poem is part of the anagram. So that is your prompt for next week, to write a poem with anagrams in it, or at least one. Which reminds me of my favorite book, um, Laurie Moore's Anagrams. I just love that novel, where the people in it shift around like anagrams. Um, so each character sort of shifts places, and you get sort of personality into a different role as the chapters move forward really fast in any book. Anyway, that is next week's prompt. Write a poem that contains an anagram. And next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Vince Gotera. Uh, Vince, is, uh, his newest book is The Coolest Month, which is a book of prompt poems. Uh, it's a play on words for the cruelest month. So April, you know, April is the cruelest month, like um, um, T.S. Eliot said. But to Vince, April is the coolest month because for the last 10 years, he's been doing a poem a day based on prompts. And so he has a poem for each day of April um, in his book, The Coolest Month. He's also, uh, for 16 years, was the editor of North American Review, which is um, one of the, I think maybe the oldest literary magazine in the United States. It's like 200 years old. And um, he was the editor of that for a long time. So I think we'll talk some editing and, and what goes into putting a journal together because he has a lot of experience with that. We'll also talk about prompts because obviously he loves those. We'll talk about a whole bunch of other things. That's going to be Rattlecast number 110 with Vince Gutera, Sunday, September 12th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, the regular time. And uh, we will see you then. In the meantime, have a good rest of your week. 